So the last time we came together, we began a two-week message series called Babel. And for two weeks, we're taking a closer look at the Old Testament story of the Tower of Babel. And this is found in Genesis chapter 11. And as we do, we're asking this question. If technology is such a big part of our lives, and I think we all agree that yes, it is. So if technology is such a big part of our lives, how do we address it? How do we relate to it in a healthy and scriptural way? So if you missed last week's message, uh, two things for you this morning. The first is you're always welcome to go back and listen to the message through our podcast online. I would encourage you to do that. You can share it with friends, uh, relatives, coworkers, anybody who might need to hear uh, that message. The second thing is if you're here today and you, you missed the message last week, you may be wondering what does a story written a few thousand years ago have, have to do at all, if, if anything, with how we relate to and use technology in, in our own lives. And you may also be wondering, does God's word even address the, the, the topic of technology? Those are great questions. So the story of the Tower of Babel is found in Genesis chapter 11, specifically verses 1 through 9. And these verses uh, come right after uh, the creation account in Genesis 1 and 2. It comes after the account of how sin entered the world in Genesis 3. It comes right after Noah and the ark and after God promises to never again flood the world in the way that he did in the past. So when we arrive in Genesis 11, we're actually four generations of, of families after the flood. And this was where our story is located, the Tower of Babel for this series. Now at this time in history, we read that all the people of the world all of the people, just imagine this for a second, all the people of the world spoke the same language. And as a group, they're seen moving east to a new land in Babylonia. Now, historians and theologians, many people believe that this would be modern-day Iraq. So if you can picture a map in your head, um, that's kind of hard for me to do sometimes. I can't really grasp the whole world sometimes. But if you can think about in terms of location where that would be, uh, it's really around modern-day Iraq. And after this group had settled in this new land, we read about how they're, they're eager to use some of this newfound technology that they now have. You see, before the move, their homes and their buildings, they would have been built out of things like stone and tar. This would have taken a really long time to work with. But now they have access to new materials because they're in a new land. Materials that when used together can help them make bricks. They also have access to this new moldable paste called mortar. So with bricks and mortar, they could build much faster. They could build much higher, more accurately than ever before. Their building projects could get off the ground and they could really build what they wanted. So this group of people, they decided to use this newfound technology to build a tower that would reach into the sky. Some of your versions will say reach into the heavens. I was thinking about this this week, you know, every purposeful building project from when time began until now, every building project has had a purpose, right? There's a purpose behind what you're building. It's going to uh, serve a specific function or a role in the community. Their purpose in building this tower, according to God's word, was so that they could make themselves known, so that they could make themselves famous. Remember, they wanted to be remembered, it was all about themselves. They were also building this tower so that they would prevent uh, being scattered all across the world. And we talked last week about how this decision really was premeditated human rebellion and ignorance. Because just two chapters earlier, 
In Genesis 9, now this would have been a few generations before, but in Genesis 9, we read about how God blessed his people and he gave them this task once again of multiplying and filling the earth, as well as confirming his covenant that human beings, his most prized creation, would have authority um, to rule over all other created things on earth, all of the things that God had made. We're going to talk about this a little bit later on in the message today, but this type of rule, this task that God gave people, isn't what we typically think about when we hear the word rule or, or authority. See, it was really meant to be an extension of God's love, his care, and, and his grace that we've received in our own lives. Now, the task and promise that God gave to multiply and fill the earth as well as to rule goes all the way back to the very beginning, to the story of creation in Genesis 1. So when we arrive at Genesis 11, our story for this series, the story of the Tower of Babel, we, we really do see the garden rebellion all over again. In Genesis 3, where we see sin first entered the world. But this time, it's at large with all of the people. So how does God respond to this human rebellion? How does he respond to this group of people deciding that they're going to build a tower that would reach into the sky for the specific purpose of making themselves famous, making themselves known? Well, we read the whole story last week, but I want to just highlight a few verses this morning. This is God's response uh, to this, this act of rebellion. Genesis eleven five through 8 says, But the Lord came down to look at the city and the tower the people were building. Look, he said, the people are united and they all speak the same language. After this, nothing they set out to do will be impossible for them. So come, let's go down and confuse the people with different languages. Then they won't be able to understand each other. And in that way, the Lord scattered them all over the world and they stopped building the city. So the people of Babel used the brick. Right? Their, their newfound technology, something that was meant for good and for the benefit of all people, and they ended up using it for evil. We talked last week about how they used the brick to promote self instead of worshiping God. There's a lot of parallel there for our culture today, the things that we have access to. Are we using them for self or for the glory of God? We read that they used the brick for self-gain instead of serving others. It was all about self and when they used the brick in this way, they modeled an unhealthy use of technology for the people around them. See, not only did they make terrible decisions themselves, but you have to remember the younger generation, the eyes that are always watching what we do, were watching every move that they make. This younger generation, this future generation, saw everything that mom and dad did, everything that grandpa and grandma did. They saw them build this tower that would reach into the sky and it would stand as an idol reminding the world of their sin, reminding the world of their rebellion. Kids catch on to these things. See, in confusing the people with different languages and scattering them all over the world, God was reminding them that the kingdom that man was creating, both then and the kingdom that we try to build ourselves now, the kingdom that man was creating would never exclude God's kingdom. So how did they, how did they get here? How did they go from the time of creation, walking with God in the garden to this point? 
or the things that they were doing, the decisions they were making was all about self, all about making themselves known, taking the focus off of God and his glory, his, his goodness and his faithfulness. Who or what was able to convince this group of people that this kind of lifestyle was, was okay, that it was a good idea, that it would benefit the people as a whole? And why did they develop this kind of relationship with, with technology, with the latest things they had at their disposal? I think the answer to these questions have to do really with one word, and that word is image. I believe the answer to these questions has everything to do with image. See, with the brick, these people had an opportunity and the ability to transform their image into whatever they wanted it to be, or so they thought. They could be seen as titans of industry. They could be seen as successful, maybe in areas that they weren't. They could be seen as self-sustaining and self-sufficient. You know, these are qualities and things that I think we promote in our culture today. You know, being self-sufficient, self-sustaining, successful. And there's an underlining truth here that I think points out that their motive was not right. They they could be seen as more attractive than maybe they really were or even more powerful. See, this newfound technology, it could pave the way for new discoveries. And, And this sounds good. This sounds great. It would also pave the way for them to live a lifestyle that they had always wanted to live. You know, as families, as individuals, we talk about these things like we have goals in our lives. This is how I want my life to look. This is the kind of house that I want to have, the kind of car I want to have, all of these things. And sometimes those can be very good for families, very beneficial for a society. But again, their purpose in using this newfound technology was to benefit self. It was to remove God from the equation. It hit me this week that in trying to change their image into what they wanted it to be, they had forgotten who God had created them to be. Let me say that again. In in trying to change their image into what they wanted it to be, they had forgotten who God had created them to be. Image is really important. It's important to people. It's important to God as well. See, God cares a lot about image. And for us to understand this image crisis that the people in this time were experiencing and the image crisis that I believe we've been experiencing ever since then, especially in our culture today, we have to go back to the beginning. We have to go back to a familiar story that addresses the topic of image. But before we look at today's text, um, I have a, a video that I'd like for us to watch this morning. This video was put together uh, by the extremely creative individuals that work for the Bible Project. And we've watched one of their videos before on Sunday. I think it was really well received. It does such a great job explaining this concept or this idea of image. Let's watch this together this morning. So if you lived in ancient Bible times, odds are you lived under the authority of a king. And many of these kings claimed that they were gods, and they would even call themselves the image of God. Meaning they had authority to tell people what to do, order things to be made. Yeah, they got to define good and evil. And these kings would often make statues of themselves, which in Hebrew were called tselem, often translated as idol or image. But for Israel... 
they didn't view their kings as the god. In fact, they were never supposed to even make images of God. It's exactly right, and that was really unique for that time and culture. This is rooted, first of all, in Israel's belief that you can't reduce the Creator God down to any one thing in creation. But there's another reason. People aren't to make images of God because God has already made images of Himself. When did He do that? Let's go to page one of the Bible, and the first person we meet there is God. He's the one with authority over all creation. He speaks, and creation obeys, and He defines what is good and not good. In other words, He alone is king. But then, surprisingly, as the pinnacle of all of God's creative work, He makes humans, and He calls all of them the image of God. So he gives all humans the authority to rule. Exactly. That's what he goes on to say. He tells the humans to subdue the earth and to rule it. And so this task that once belonged only to elite kings is here in the Bible the task of every human being. This was a revolutionary statement in its day because all humans are being called to rule and to participate in the human project. So what does this mean? I mean, how are we all supposed to rule? So the picture we get in Genesis is gardening. Gardening? Yes. Gardening. So they rule the earth by cultivating it, by harnessing all of the earth's raw potential, and then making something more and new out of it. So growing food for each other. Yes, but that also includes growing families. Then, which become neighborhoods, and then they create communities where people are going to work and take care of each other, and build businesses and cities that will expand to new places and so on. So ruling is really the day-to-day acts of. Our work and creativity. Yes, we take the world somewhere. This is humanity's divine and sacred task. Yeah, and this all sounds really nice. And humans have designed some pretty great things. But just as often we create things that cause a lot of suffering and a lot of injustice, so maybe we shouldn't actually be ruling.、Huh? Yeah. So the Bible addresses this in Genesis. What happens is that God gives humans a choice about how they're going to rule. So are they going to use their authority for the benefit of others, which is God's definition of good, or are they going to turn away and define good and evil for themselves and use their authority for self-advantage? And in the story, they choose to define good and evil on their own terms. And so this is the Bible's depiction of the human condition. So sometimes we pull off amazingly good stuff, but just as often, despite our best intentions, we act selfishly and we create evil in the world. And so we're stuck as mediocre rulers making a mess of things. But that's not the end of the story. So the Bible goes on and it makes this claim that all of this was resolved when God bound Himself to humanity through Jesus, and He showed us what it looks like to truly rule as a human. So what does it look like? Well, Jesus ruled by serving and by seeking the best for others, by putting himself underneath them and loving not just his friends but also his enemies. And that's not a typical way to rule. And not only that, Jesus confronted the consequences of all of the evil and the death that we have created by our messed up ways of ruling, and he takes it. I mean, he lets it kill him. And so, when the New Testament writers looked back to Jesus's resurrection, they see a whole new future opening up for all humanity. Jesus is a new way to be human. Yeah, that's why they called Jesus the image of God or the new human. And not only that, they also believe that Jesus's divine life and power is now available to heal and to transform us to become our life and power. 
And this sounds really nice, but what does it really look like? So practically, the Apostle Paul said it looks like people being filled by Jesus' own presence and spirit, filled with love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and integrity and gentleness and self-control. He says this is the new humanity that God wants to create in us so that we become people in whom God's image is being restored, people who will move the human project forward. And that's actually how the story of the Bible ends. It's a renewed world where God is on his throne and his servants are all around him, but they're the ones ruling over this new world, taking it into new, uncharted territory with Jesus as their healer and their guide. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I want to invite you to open to Genesis chapter 1, specifically verses 26 through 31. And we're going to have the words on the screen as well this morning. So Genesis 1, verse, starting in verse 26, says, Then God said, Let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign, and some of your translations will say rule, over the fish of the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals on the earth, and the small animals that scurry along the ground. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and govern it. Reign or rule over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the ground. Then God said, Look, I have given you every seed-bearing plant throughout the earth and all the fruit trees for your food. And I have given every green plant as food for all the wild animals, the birds in the sky and the small animals that scurry along the ground, everything that has life. And this is what happened. And then God looked over all that he had made and saw that it was very good. And evening passed and morning came, marking the sixth day. One of the things that makes the first two chapters of Genesis so interesting um, is the repetition that we see. You see, these early chapters, they read uh, much differently than the rest of the book. They have a flow that's not seen in the rest of Genesis. We see this repetition over and over again in the story of creation. If you go back even further than what we just read this morning, we see how God created the animals, the the fish, the birds, and the cattle. And when he did, he created all of these things after their own kind. He also says, according to their kind. This means that the birds had a likeness to birds. The fish had a likeness to fish. The cattle had a likeness to cattle. And then God describes the creation of man. Listen to this again. We just read these two verses, but maybe you'll see it through a little different lens. Genesis 1, 26 and 27 says, Then God said, Let us make human beings. What's the the two words here? Oh, let's say say it together. Then God said, Let us make human beings in our image to be like us. Then they will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals on the earth, and the small animals that scurry along the ground. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So God created human beings in his own image, according to his kind. Human beings are the only uh, creatures in all of the world created in the image of God. 
Birds didn't get it. The cattle didn't get it. My dog, who I I so dearly love at home, did not get it. Your favorite pet at home didn't get it. You see, we got it. You and I. You and I were made to resemble God's likeness. Not, not, Not a bird's likeness or a fish's likeness, but God's likeness. You were given the ability and the responsibility to represent God. Something that no other creature on earth was given. So what exactly does it mean to be created in the image of God? As you would imagine, there are a lot of viewpoints on this. But what I've done this week is I've compiled uh, three of the most popular viewpoints that um, really any evangelical Christian church would teach, uh, according with God's word. And I did so, I condensed it down, and I'm going to give you these just kind of really quick. So everybody take a breath. What does it mean to be made in the image of God? Here are three uh, very brief views on this. Number one, some people suggest that it may refer uh, to uh, some spiritual or mental quality in humans that nothing else was given. So maybe the ability to think or feel emotions like we do or to even choose, you know, having a will. Others teach, and this would be number two, that the emphasis and the context of Genesis 1, 26 and 27 is on humans ruling over God's creation. So since God is a creative God and we are created in his image, you and I are also called to be creators. So for example, the first humans were given the task of naming all of the animals. Wouldn't that be fun? It'd be kind of a long job. You know, we're in the process of moving right now, and I think that's a long job. Think about naming all of the animals. That would just be extremely tiresome. But also, they were called to be fruitful and multiply, and we see this over and over again. And this would emphasize this active role that God gives us to continue his creative work. Number three. Some people point out the relational quality of the triune God in creation. And this is seen in phrases like, um, let us, and in our image, and to be like us. This would highlight other passages of scripture that point to one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It was author Henry Haley who suggested uh, that since there are relationships that exist within God himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, We too have the ability to enter into a relationship with God and with other people. And this is what it means to be made in the image of God. So these are three um, very popular viewpoints of what it means to be made in the image of God. Is it wrong to maybe go down this trail and start studying these things and learning these things? Absolutely not. But a word of caution. When it comes to a truth like this, I think we can find ourselves going down a rabbit hole and forgetting the main point. I, you know, I believe that a correct understanding of what it means to be made in the image of God would actually include aspects of more than one of these different interpretations. But again, instead of spending our time trying to define, just to fill ourselves, our, our lives with head knowledge of what it means to be made in the image of God, I think it's so much more important to remember that as human beings who are created in the image of God, you and I are able to relate to God in a unique and special way that's not shared by any other of God's creation. This is amazing. This is what should influence how we, we live our lives, how we treat one another, how we, how we even view our own identity and, and ourselves. See, every single person, every single person who's ever been born, regardless of their skin color, 
regardless of their social status, regardless even of their political party. I want you to hear this, church. They have value simply because they were created in the image of God. You and I have value, not because of how our bodies look, not because of which political party we belong to, not because of how many friends we have on Facebook, not because of who we're married to, or because of our social status. Those are not the things that provide value in our lives. We have value because we were created by God, in the image of God, to represent God. See, this truth is foundational in who we are as human beings. You could even say that it's the most basic thing about every person. You are an image bearer of God. The the person next to you is an image bearer of God. The person that you just really don't like being around at work, they're an image bearer of God. We have value because we were created by God in the image of God, to represent God. You're an image bearer of God, and even though this image has been distorted because of sin, nothing can change the fact that you're still an image bearer of God. See, it matters a lot to God that we get this idea of image. It matters so much that it's one of the very first things that we read when we open up God's word. God wanted us to know from the very beginning in whose image we reflect And in whose likeness we share. And church, I believe if we can get this this truth, it really does begin to change everything. The word image in Genesis is used to describe the imprint of God on our lives. But when we use that word image in our culture today, we tend to use it a little differently. Whether it's talking with a spouse or a coworker or uh, something that we see on, on the evening news. You see, we think... In our, in our culture today, we, we believe that somehow we can change our image. We believe we can change our image. We believe that we can even create a new image or have a different image depending on who we're around and how we want to be perceived by others. But the Genesis account of creation teaches something vastly different. Genesis tells us that our image, based on who God is, does not change. Let me say that again, church. Our image, based on who God is, does not change. No matter where we go, no matter what we do, this image stays the same. So what does this have to do with our use of technology? Well, the residents of Babel, they had an image problem. They had an image crisis. And when we talk about their decision to build a tower using technology to change their image and making everything about themselves, it could be that they just forgot in whose image they were made. They forgot about the God who created them, who had put his stamp on them and who, who loved them so much. And as a result, they started looking for other things that could give them a sense of worth and a sense of belonging. And all of a sudden, now we start to see the dots connected. As a result, they started looking for other things that could give them this sense of worth and belonging. They started building a tower, not as a tribute to their creator, not as an act of worship, but as a tribute to themselves in an effort to prove their worth, to prove their power, to prove their authority, to prove their belonging. They felt like they had something to prove. 
to church, they, they forgot who they were. And they believed that uh, somehow throwing some bricks on top of some other bricks might give them this sense of worth and, and identity and image that they so badly wanted. Here's where it connects. See, in the same way, if you and I are not careful, if we're not prayerful and if we're not intentional, we can allow our use of technology to shape a false image of who we are. Again, I believe that technology is meant to be something that's for the good of people and, and really helps move society forward. And it can be something that we, we use to give God the glory. But if we're not careful, we can allow technology to, to shape a false image of who we were created to be. See, our, our use of technology could have a voice, a voice into who we are that it does not deserve to have, a voice that only God has the right to have. We can easily fall into the temptation of believing the lie that our image is somehow tied to our use of technology and that we can shape or even change our image into what we want it to be. I see this all the time on, on Facebook. I see it all the time depicted in movies. That because we want to be viewed and seen a certain way, our, our use of technology is done so in a way that we portray something that's not reality. You know, you, you go on Facebook and you see, you know, everybody's family vacation photos. And, and that's awesome to share. I think that's amazing to do. You know, we, we do the same thing. But what we don't see is the other 99.9% of the time, what rea- reality is really like behind closed doors for that family. <laughs> that's all of us. We don't see the arguments and the struggles. We don't see the temptation and the conflict. We don't, we don't see some of the other good times as well. We're, we're putting off a false image at, at times in the way that we use technology. So last week, I challenged you to examine your relationship with technology. We just want to start the conversation. Begin to think about that yourself. Uh, talk with your spouse at home. Have the conversation with your kids. How are we using technology in our lives in a way that glorifies God? So I gave you three questions la- last week. When we're examining our use of technology, we can always ask these questions. Number one, am I promoting God or self? You know, when we think about the story of the Tower of Babel, they built the tower for uh, their self-promotion, for uh, self-glorification, to be, to be famous. That's what the, the word the Bible uses. It wasn't for the glory of God. And we can ask ourselves the same question. When I use technology, is it, is it for the glory of God is it, or for self? The second question I gave you last week is, am I serving or taking? You know, we live in a very consumeristic society. One that says that it's even okay to go out and uh, take out a loan just for a phone. (laughs) You know, we talked about that a little bit last week. And I've been down that road. So is my use of technology, am am I serving others or am I just taking? And finally, am I modeling a healthy use of technology for others? You know, I had a great conversation with a family member not too long ago, and the question came up, what's okay to watch in your home, you know? And people ask those questions, like, what are the do's and don'ts? In church, it's not really about the do's and don'ts. It's, it's about the heart. It's about a relationship with Jesus. It's about being led by God's Spirit to make the decisions that honor and glorify God. You know, I think if we're just asking those questions, well, what can I do and what can't I do? Then our, our lives become about the law. It becomes about rules. And that's not what a relationship with Jesus is about. But I had this conversation with a family member not too long ago, and they asked this question. Like, well, you know, we watch these kind of shows with our kids, and then when they go to bed, then we're able to watch what we want, because it's made for adults. (laughs) 
and I think we try to justify our use of technology because of our age, and that has nothing to do with it. It re- really should be more about the heart and our relationship with Christ. I think a good thing that Faith and I have talked about is, you know, if we can watch it in front of our kids, we can watch it. If we can't, we probably shouldn't. We don't want to allow things into our mind and into our hearts that shouldn't be there. Again, it's not about the do's and the don'ts. It's about you responding because of a sincere and genuine faith that you have in Jesus. So am I modeling a healthy use of technology for others? There are little eyes on us all the time. Not only little ones, but peers and coworkers and friends. And we want to promote Jesus. We want to give an accurate picture of who God really is. So my question for us today is just one question, and you'll notice that you don't have anything to fill in. It's because I wanted you to take notes on your own today, but this is the question for today. What image are we trusting in? What image are we trusting in? What image are we putting our confidence in? Is it the one that we can change and manipulate to be what others want it to be, or is it the one that stays the same, the one that acknowledges God's imprint and design in our lives? his design and our identity. A good question today is, does, does this define our identity and our image? Is this what we use to promote who we are? Or does this? Or is our foundation in God's word or in what the world says who we are? Do we begin to learn about who we are as as a child of God because of God's word or because of what others say about us? You see, the temptation to find our identity, our image, or our value in our use of technology, it's real. It's real now more than ever before. And I don't believe that this is so much a generational thing. I think we we interact with technology maybe in in a different way. But the temptation is there. The struggle is real. And this morning, if that's a struggle that that you have, if that's a temptation that you face every day, and it could look a lot of different ways, but just your use of technology in general, if if it's consuming you, if it's taking over you, if it's destroying the relationship in the home, I can't tell you how many people I've talked to that have said, I just really can't have a conversation with my spouse anymore because of what they've put in the middle of themselves. And it's usually either what's on TV or what's on their iPad or on their phone. I don't play with my kids as much as I used to because, because of this. You know, it, the temptation is there. The struggle is real. And if that's the case, I want you to remember 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13 this morning. This is what we started off with today. The temptations in your life are no different from what others experience. And God is faithful. He will not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. When you are tempted, he will show you a way out so that you can endure. The Apostle Paul's words remind us of a few things today. First, that wrong desires and temptations, it happens to everybody. In fact, if you have something that you've been consistently been tempted with this week, you're not being singled out because of that struggle, because of that temptation. Paul's highlighting that truth. Let's just get it out in the open today. As humans, we struggle. There's temptation in our lives. We give in to that temptation when it becomes sin. But then Paul goes on to 
talk about how others have been able to resist temptation. Church, this is good news because so can you. And then he concludes by really letting us know how to do that. That it's not really in our own strength. Here's what he says. He says, we're able to resist temptation because God is the one who helps us resist it. Amen? The world tells us that our identity and our image can be changed and manipulated to fit what others want it to be. That we have to somehow mold our lives to satisfy and and please other people. But God's word reminds us that our identity and image is defined and found in God alone. Let's be a church, families, individuals that trust in God's design and trust him with our lives today, especially when it comes to this topic of image. That's a good thing to remember. Anytime you're interacting with someone or using technology, and and whose image were you made? Remember that truth today. This group of people, the babblers, they had an image problem. They had an image crisis. They forgot in whose image they were made. Church, today, let's just remember that truth. That every person, and I know you can go a lot deeper with this, and we can start talking about having a relationship with Jesus and the life transformation that happens in that. And and that is a truth, and, and we've talked about that so much. But every person, just at a foundational level, is made in the image of God. We need to remember that truth.